The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Jim has assured me that we have an exciting show set for today and he went so far as to say he would take full responsibility if it is not exciting. So I can't wait to see what he brings forth to us today. I'm sure we're going to start with some Social Security uh, questions. Um, uh, he's been kind of on a... a a, an IRMA kick, if you will, the income-related monthly adjustment amount uh, or Medicare premium surcharge, as it's alternatively known. So I suspect we're going to get at least one of those questions in here too, and then kind of uh, something out of the grab bag, if you will, um, for the rest of the time that we've got in the show. So if you want to send in your own questions to the show, send them to Jim directly, Jim at jimhelps.com is his email address. That's jimhelps.com. And uh, in the subject line, make sure you indicate that it is a question for the podcast. So uh, I'm sure Jim's itching to get going here, so I'll bring him on. Good morning, Jim. Were you trying to throw me under the bus there? Young no, man? I was just telling people how they could get a hold of you. That's a submit no, a question. No. This, this whole excitement thing. I made no such promise, folks. But Chris, trying to be wise, doesn't know what I know. So I think I might be able to, I won't be able to make it exciting to the point where it's like, oh my God, I got to listen to this five times. But I got a little bit of information from someone. Uh, as I was looking for an Irma question, his email popped up from January. And he wasn't even asking an Irma question, mm -hmm. but he did use the word, uh, the, the initialism uh, Irma mm -hmm. in his um, uh, email to me. So when I read his email a second time, I thought, this is pretty damn interesting. So I will now dig that email up mm. and I will lead his email into our Irma question after you get through two social security questions. So Mr. Smarty Pants, maybe I can make this a little bit more interesting since you painted me into a corner here. You felt too much pressure putting the expectation the that the show the would be exciting today. Yeah. I, and some people may find this exciting. 
You Maybe. may actually find this exciting because well, although I'm not sure, this person might be involved. He's definitely involved with the government. He may even work for the Department of Acronyms. Mm. I don't One know. One of my favorite departments, except when they went on hiatus there for a few years and had horrible acronyms coming out. And that's what he is addressing from apparently we did a show in January complaining about that. <laughs> and he is setting the record straight. Oh, nice. Well, I can't so, wait. I, I am interested now. You've got my now attention. Now you're excited. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Wise ass trying to paint me into a corner. Well, I'm, I'm proud of you for getting your way out of there. All right. Well, before we get, and I have to dig up his email. I know it's from January, so I got to go back and find it. Uh, actually, I probably just searched for Irma again because he used the word Irma in his email. Yeah. But instead, let's start with Social Security questions, folks, as I dig up the excitement for the show. All right, this came in. This is actually going to double as Social Security question and new question of the week. I thought I would elevate it to the new question of the week because I believe this person. Uh, is on the way uh, to uh, the Social Security office mm. to to meet, and and he wants to help um, his mom. So that's why I wanted to get this uh, mm. kind of jumped up in line. Okay. Okay. He sent this through our website, helpwithmysocialsecurity.com. So uh, we do not have a. Oh wait a minute. He does give a hint. Uh, he's from the state that has the most cities that gi- what state that I should have read this closer. What, what are you? Were you teaming up with this guy to to? Tri- so I have no he, influence on submissions. So his hint <laughs> is I'm from the state that has the most cities that Jim pronounces in a very unique way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> such as Point Port Hugh Hugh Enemy. Point Hugh, I think he's just pulling my leg. H U E N E M E. Point Hugh. Hugh, Hugh I personally am not totally sure how to pronounce that one, but I I have no idea. When did I pronounce it in a unique? How do you even pronounce that word? Well, you, and, yeah, you don't. Maybe that's his point. And Temecula. Well, no. Uh, Temecula. There you go. Oh, I see what he's doing. Now we know the state. No, no. He's he's trying to paint me into a hole. He typed Mm T-E-M-E-C-U-L-A. Now I know. Okay, because I did call Temecula Temecula the first time I read it. Um, But what is Port Huenen... I don't that know. other word. I'll look up how to pronounce that while you're reading the rest of it. Although I guess I should probably pay attention to the. Uh, you need to pay attention uh, to the question, question. But anyways, he's from California. You are right. Apparently, I miss. If you don't know, folks, you don't listen to this show <laughs> to master the English language. Please, God, no. And I tend to muff up words and say them wrong and put sayings together from multiple sources. Whatever. It's just who I am. It's how I talk. And I forget names constantly. Looks like it's uh, Wynami. No. Wynami. But when did I even try to say that? I don't that think you word? ever tried that one. That was just an example of the type of town that you would have difficulty with. Oh, okay. 
Well, if I knew this guy was giving me a dig, I wouldn't have elevated his question to the top <laughs> well, of the list. You're too far down the path now, so yeah, we're too late. To... Now I got to go. <laughs> okay, he continues. My dad recently passed away, and for that, all jokes aside, listener, um, we do uh, extend our sympathies to you. My f- dad recently passed away at age 81. He took Social Security at 70 and had a PIA of 4000 per month. My mom, age 78, has a California's teacher's pension of about 3000 a month and has been affected by GPO and WEP. Uh, the Social Security's office is saying that she cannot claim a survivor's benefit due to her GPO. Mm. The, the person on the phone mentioned her pension was more than the survivor's Social Security, which is factually incorrect. So she would receive no survivor benefit. This is a discrepancy from what I've picked up by listening to your show. Admittedly, I may have misunderstood Chris's previous explanations. My mom is scheduled to go in person to the Social Security office, and I plan on attending with her. I will ask for a technical expert to review her case. As I continue to dig online, my mom may not be eligible due to GPO, but if she had passed away first, my dad would have had his Social Security and her pension. Even so, I want to try to get her the Social Security survivor benefit she's entitled. Any clarification or guidance about how to phrase things when I'm in the Social Security office would be greatly appreciated. He did pick up on one big thing. If the person with the pension passes first, the survivor gets a pretty good deal. Uh Yeah. Because the GPO or WEP situation does not transfer to the survivor if they weren't affected by it themselves. So it is kind of Even, a strange situation that he pointed out at the end. And then I'll, we'll address his main question here. But but that is an interesting fact to realize that if you have a survivor benefit on your non-covered pension, so on her teacher's pension, if, if uh, her husband was named as a beneficiary and had a survivorship benefit owed to him, um, he would be able to receive that in full without any type of offsets or anything and collect his own full social security benefit uh, because he did not have the GPO or WEP uh, effects from work. She did, and it went away in our hypothetical if she were to have passed first. So, uh, yeah, in your in your planning, if you're doing it yourself, you need to kind of make sure you're factoring in survivorship properly to make sure you are addressing uh, each case, you know, one spouse passing or the other p- spouse passing, what is left over for that surviving spouse. Uh, but back to his original question, his main question, I do, based on what he's shared, the numbers he shared, it looks like they are giving him bad information over the phone for sure. Uh The good news is I think when he goes in there and sits down, they'll probably correct it immediately because this is very straightforward. And I doubt he'll even have to ask for a technical expert. But if he gets pushback still face-to-face, then yes, a technical expert needs to be called upon. Because the rule is the person that is affected by GPO, the government pension offset, their Social Security 
survivor benefit or spousal benefit that they might receive from their spouse is reduced $2 for every $3 of the pension amount. So for listeners to remind you, Jim mentioned that her pension was, her California teacher's pension was 3000 a month. So her GPO offset to any benefits she might receive from her husband's record is two-thirds of that, or $2,000. That's why she likely has, well, sounds like from the email, never has collected a spousal benefit from the husband because her GPO offset is big enough to eliminate any spousal benefit. So if he had called the office and the, the husband was still alive and they were finding out about a spousal benefit for the wife, the answer that they provided would have been true. No, you're not due any spousal because the GPO offset is so large that um, it completely wipes out any potential spousal. But the survivor benefit isn't half of the PIA of the other person. It is all of the benefit that they were collecting when they passed. Now, he calls it he, the, the, the father's PIA was 4000 a month. I'm assuming that's what he was actually collecting. So it may not have technically been his PIA, but with delayed retirement credits and everything, he was receiving 4000 So she is, at first, due $4,000 as a survivor benefit. Then they apply the GPO offset of $2,000. So the survivor benefit she would be entitled to should be about $2,000. 4000 minus the 2000 offset. So she doesn't uh, receive the full survivor benefit, but because her teacher's pension is not enormous, if her teacher's pension was large enough, then of course two-thirds of the pension would be more than $4,000 and would completely wipe out the survivor benefit. In her case, if the numbers he's sharing with, her, with us are accurate, it appears to me that she is owed about half of what the husband was collecting. Um, and yes, this kind of answer happens. And unfortunately there's hundreds of thousands of documented cases through researchers that have looked into this of widows and widowers being, I don't know if denied is the right word, but being misled into not collecting benefits that they are due. And so it's very important for you out there, either for your own protection or for the protection of your parents, maybe that might be running into this kind of a situation that you get your ducks in a row about social security. And you know, you figure out ahead of time what you should be getting so that when you do go to claim at social security, if they try to tell you something different, I mean, I guess it's no problem if they want to pay you more (laughs) than you were expecting, but if it's noticeably less Demand an explanation. Ask for a technical expert to review the case. um, Because a lot of people would have taken this phone call. They would have called. And they would have gotten that response. No, you're not doing anything. And they would have just let it go. And she would have missed out on a couple thousand dollars a month for the rest of her life. Inflation adjusted. That's big dollars. That's a lot. When she's only collecting 3000 on her own, an extra 2000 a month, that's a big difference. So the sad thing is this happens way more than it should. Um, and, and the burden falls on you all, if you will, uh, either work with someone 
independent from the Social Security office themselves uh, to verify these types of things or do your own research. There's plenty of resources out there. Our website has a lot on it. There's a lot of other websites that have reliable information and you can check a few of them to make sure that they all have a similar answer on there. But kind of know what you do before you go in there. And luckily he realized that his mom was not getting the right information and they've made him an appointment to go in. So I think they'll have no problem. There's no special wording to use. It's a very straightforward situation of a survivor benefit and a GPO effect. They'll do the calculations there in front of you, and I think you'll find she is due a benefit. This next question is, it it could be considered a long rambling question, because it kind of is. So I know what he's kind of asking, and it's in... I'll kind of breeze through his email quickly, and then you can pretty much summarize what he's trying to get at. Okay, it says, Dear Chris and Jim, and now he must be a longtime listener because he says, I'm only putting Chris's name first due to this being a Social Security question. Plus, I love hearing Jim opine sourly about Chris getting all the attention. (laughs) So he's got to be a longtime listener on that one. Okay, because everybody knows his dear Jim and Chris. All righty. I am coming to you from one of the states most impacted so far by this summer's hot weather. This is an easy one. Hmm. Our city that I live in has experienced 24 days in a row. And this was as of... When the heck did he mail it to me? I have no idea. Uh, Oh, my birthday. Very good. July 24th. Um, Our largest city has so far experienced 24 days in a row above 110 degrees. Mm. Care to guess the state? Um, Oh, come on. I was originally, I was thinking about Texas, but I don't think they were going over 110. That's usually more of the desert area. So it's, I'm guessing Arizona. Arizona. Oh, wait a minute. But he did say, although I'm sure Texas has had their fair share of records. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. I think it wasn't quite as high as he's talking about, but Texas throws in the humidity. So so it's uh, at least in Phoenix, it's a it's a dry heat. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, that makes one time. I always yeah. say my answer to that is, yeah, so is my oven, but I wouldn't sit in it. <laughs> So, because that's so out here, that's all you hear, yeah. folks. When it's this summer has been relatively mild. If if summer was like this all the time in Colorado, I'd be hard pressed to say I'm. Yeah, going. it wasn't too bad at all. No, and we actually had rain. Mm-hmm. Now, if I was living on the East Coast, we'd be complaining about how dry the summer was. Yeah. But for Colorado, this it was, was wet. actually wet mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a bizarre way. Having what little we got is more than we normally get. So if we had weather like this um, every summer, it's just that Colorado, not nearly as bad as Arizona, but we will get prolonged periods, usually sometimes starting in May and running all the way through September, I kid you not, of 90, 90s, 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 and occasionally getting to 100, uh, whereas Phoenix obviously has, it's 100 all the time. But everybody out here, including Chris, will say, oh, but it's a dry heat. So as I'm boiling at 98 degrees four days in a row without an ounce of rain, it, it just I get fed up with hearing it's a dry heat. So I just start saying, so is my oven, but I wouldn't sit in it. You have kind of a point. Yeah, thank you. Okay. 
So he continues, my social security question pertains to the primary insurance amount or PIA. And at what age or point is the PIA amount, quote unquote, set as it pertains to calculating delayed retirement credits? I know the PIA at 67 is the figure used to calculate delayed retirement credits. But is it the age 67 PIA when you turn 67? Or is it the PIA when you become first eligible for Social Security at 62? I ask, of course, because of COLA. Between ages 62 and 67, you have the potential for COLA to increase your PIA. If COLAs were 2% a year, that could amount to making your PIA at 67 10% higher than it was at 62, which would in turn make your delayed retirement credit figure it's calculated off even higher. He, he adds a little bit more. I truncated it. And then he says, please let me know. I greatly enjoy your weekly podcast and have come to appreciate both your ban- bantering and rabbit holes. Keep up the humorous digging. Sincerely, uh, George. He gave his real name. So, can to help George mm-hmm. from Arizona? Yeah. So, um, the way the PIA is talked about in the Social Security manual itself, it becomes, quote, official uh, when you turn 62. And by official, it means that prior to that, those were only estimates of what your PIA might be. Uh, Then they kind of fix it. And then from that PIA, now that's become official, other benefits, uh, you know, all of your benefits and benefits attached to you called auxiliary benefits are going to be based on that PIA. Now, over time, that PIA that was set at 62 will be adjusted if there are cost of living adjustments, COLAs. They will also be adjusted if you have additional earnings added to your earnings record where you're working past 62 and those earnings are large enough to replace one of your previously used highest 35 years of earnings that that established your PIA in the first place. So your PIA could change from that as well. What won't happen is the PIA will not go down due to not working or or something like that. It's it's kind of set, if you will, and then will go up for mostly COLA reasons. So not many people have earnings after sixty two that are substantial enough to have a you know big impact on their PIA, but some do. Some do. If you're if your really high earnings years are later and you maybe had some zeros before because you're out of the workforce for a while, work in your sixties could very well be incrementally increasing your PIA each year. And that effect doesn't ever change. There's no end date on that, just so people know. It doesn't, they don't stop looking at that um, ever, technically. So if you earned a whopping check in you know, the year you were 90 and that increased your PIA at that point, you'd get the benefit of that moving forward uh, after that. He's asking, are they plucking out a PIA from a particular year and then applying the delayed retirement credits, that 8% per year increase in benefits that you receive for delaying past your full retirement age? And he's using 67 as the full retirement age, which is, applies to everyone born after 1960. Um, and the good news is they're always using your 
Um, well, to determine your benefit, let me back up a step and just simply say, to determine your benefit, they first figure your adjusted PIA and then apply to that adjusted PIA all of your delayed retirement credits up to that point. So you will get the most recent PIA, we'll call it that. So he doesn't have to worry about what he was concerned with about them plucking out an old, like an age 62, the very original PIA that was set back then. They don't. They adjust the PIA for COLA and any other you know earnings that have been added to your record that might benefit you. And then they apply the delayed retirement credits based on how many months past your um, full retirement age that you have waited to claim. So pretty straightforward um, question, but there's uh, also a lot of confusion. I'll mention one other thing before I bring Jim back in, and that is some people uh, ask, do they do the delayed retirement credits first? Do they apply those first and then the COLA adjustments to adjust your PIA or, or the other way around? And mathematically, it doesn't matter. They technically do the PIA adjustments first with the COLA and then add the delayed retirement credits to that. But the math all works out exactly the same, even if they were to do it the other way. So it um, doesn't matter in that particular case. All right. Was that my cue? That's your cue. Excellent. All right. That was actually a very good answer. Well, thank you. So now we're going to get into the excitement of the show. Mm. Do we have a drum roll? Do we have a drum roll? Um, no, I don't have a drum roll handy. I have clapping. <laughs> you don't have I to have, clap. Uh, no, no, no. You don't have, mm, you don't have to get it all. No, I don't okay. have anything good. So when I was searching for Chris's Irma question, the only reason I'm doing this now, folks, is because Chris began this show by saying, I promise I was going to make this exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty hard to make financial planning, retirement planning, and all this other stuff we talk about exciting. But this morning, when I was searching for a Irma question to ask Chris, I've learned to just type the word Irma into my little search box in my Outlook email program here. And this, this email popped up, and it wasn't really an Irma question. But as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. And he was addressing something that Chris and I were talking about way back in January. And do you remember when we were answering a question on a QHFD? Do you even remember what QHFD stands for? And we were saying, this has yeah, got to didn't be go the through worst the, yeah. acronym. Yeah, and I always bring up... Usmaka to the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement or whatever that replaced NAFTA. NAFTA was nice. NAFTA U was Usmaka, easy. Usmaka, yeah. I don't know about that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what QHFD, what was it? was uh, Qualified HSA Funding Distribution. There you go. Yep. It was, I was when almost you, there. <laughs> when you can transfer one-time mm -hmm. only uh, money from your IRA into your HSA. Yep. <clears throat> and we had a question on that. Mm -hmm. But we started just <laughs> rambling on. About the about acronym being the so acronym. bad. <laughs> yeah. So this guy wrote to us. And uh, he began with, I work with the federal government. And coming up with good acronyms is actually fun. 
I have no idea if he works for the Department of Acronyms, <laughs> but that's how he began it. And he said, I would call a QHFD a stacronymin. Oh, God. S-T-A-C-K-R-O-N-Y-M. Stacronym? Stacronym. Stacronym. Care must be taken to ensure that an initialization does not result in an offensive acronym. True. He, so he said, let me educate you. He said an abbreviation is when we remove a few letters to shorten a word. Mm -hmm. For instance, BLVD for Boulevard. Mm -hmm. He said an initialization is when we take the first letter of each word mm -hmm. in a phrase, he said, such as HSA for health savings account. Right. An acronym is when the initialization that results can be pronounced as a word. Yep. Like Irma, pronounced mm -hmm. E-R-M-A, but I-R-M-A-A. -A. Right. He said, but a stacronym is an acronym or an initialization stacked on top of another acronym or initialization. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Where one or more of the initials represent yes. another uh -huh. Initialization. Initialization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can that, see that. Yeah. And he continues, and that's what QHFD is. It's a qualified for Q, HSA for the H, funding distribution. Yeah. And of course, HSA is already an initialization. Yeah. Do you think this guy works for the Department of Acronyms? Sure sounds like it. He's keeping it a little bit secret. You notice how he didn't divulge the location or his top secret clearance or anything like that. But his in-depth knowledge of this situation leads me to believe we might have found our guy. <laughs> I would like to know, was he in fact working there during the Usmaka years? Because <laughs> that's the one that offends me the most. <laughs> Because NAFTA was just such a, it's just such a pleasant acronym to pronounce. But anyway, well, and there was a I, I, there was a few there. Don't you remember? And there there was just a, it wasn't just Usmaka. That's the one I always call up. But there was several during that time period that it was like, wait a minute, did the Department of Acronyms just shut down because they were just they were coming out with stuff and they, you know, they've regained I think with like Secure Act and all that kind of stuff that the acronyms have gotten better again, but um, there was a couple of years there where it was rough. Hmm. So, I don't know. So yeah, thank, I, this, that was fascinating. That, that right there made today's show worthwhile for me personally. <laughs> for you, everybody mm -hmm. else is probably fast forwarding through it. But anyway, see, you try to throw me under the bus and no, I saved I knew the day. You could, I knew you could come through. Okay. All right, so the real Irma question that I found as well, 
uh, is from a gentleman in Texas. We will call him George. There's no hint, obviously, for his state. Okay, I have been listening to your podcast for six years and would find it difficult to overstate how much I've learned from you regarding retirement financial planning. Thank you for the podcast. I have what I think is a question with a simple answer, but I don't recall it being addressed on the podcast, perhaps because the answer is too obvious. I retired at 56. I'm now 60. My wife is 59. Starting in the year after I retired, I have been doing Roth conversions of 150000 a year, which is designed to bring our joint taxable income to the near top of the 24% tax bracket. I had planned to continue these Roth conversions through the year in which I turned 62 and to then do an analysis of whether I want to do another conversion in the year I turned 63, but of course taking into account my IRMA payments expected in the year I turned 65. It just hit me though. Because my birthday is in September, IRMA is likely to be insignificant to me in the year I turn 65 because I will only have I will only have to pay for it for four months, September through December. Then the next month, which is January of the year in which I turn 66, my income for the year in which I turn 63 will no longer be relevant, as that year's IRMA will be based on my income in the year in which I turn 64. This is really hard to follow. Am I thinking about this correctly? Thanks so much for your help. I think what his main deal is, he's saying, do I really need to worry about Irma the first time because I'm only going to have to pay for it for a couple of months because mm -hmm. I was not turning 65 until September. Right. What says you? I say he's interpreting it exactly correctly. That in the year you turn 65, the later in the year that your birthday is, uh, the fewer months that you're going to be affected by Irma. So um, in his case, considering doing Roth conversions that will increase his Maggie modified adjusted gross income for the Irma calculation, um, it's going to be far less impactful in that one year, that first year that he's claiming Medicare or he's on Medicare. Uh, after that, he'll have 12 months every year that he would be affected by Irma. So then he's in Irma would be in full force at that point. But we see this a lot of times that when we're looking at this, if they happen to have a late in the year uh, birthday, then it makes it a lot easier to do kind of an additional year of conversions in some type of conversion strategy without having to worry much about Irma. Because even if the Irma is large on a monthly basis, if it's only for a few months, it's not a huge deal because we, we look at Irma like a tax. Irma is, in fact, uh, you know, it gets applied to your Medicare payments, but it's based on income. It's extra payments you make to the government because you make more money. That's a tax in, in anybody's eyes, in my opinion. Um, so when we're calculating whether it makes sense to do conversions for someone, we have to take consideration all the effects, all the tax effects, and Irma would be one of them. So the Irma 
when it's reduced because there's only a few months in play, that changes that whole dynamic. And so I think he's thinking about it exactly right. The one thing, though, is if he's really just converting and keeping their... their uh, um, Oh, he's keeping the taxable income near the top of the 24 bracket. But but be careful with this. I'm going to point this out because I've heard this a couple of times now that some people think it's your taxable income figure from your tax return that determines IRMA. It's not. It's your modified adjusted gross income. So if you're filling that bracket, you are going to be a little bit, you're going to be up into that first IRMA tier uh, usually. It kind of depends on your your deductions and everything, uh, everybody's situation is unique, but just be aware it's the modified adjusted gross income that is the trigger for Irma, not your taxable income line, which is after your uh, deductions. So um, be aware of that. Be aware of that. But yeah, I think he's thinking about it right in that partial year. That makes a lot of sense to consider it that way. Perfect. I thought so too. All right, well, that takes care of two Social Security questions and one mm-hmm. Irma question. That's kind of how we've been leading the show. for. Well, for, don't leave out the exciting news about the acronyms. Oh, true. The, the tremendous, oh, mm-hmm. and a stacronym, which mm-hmm. I've never heard of before until today. No, and I, I see my goal is to learn something new every day, and that's it, and it's pretty early in the day. so <laughs> You can take the rest of the day off. Yeah. You can stop learning. Okay, so this next question is um, kind of ties into a question that I remember, and I can't remember if we answered the original question way back in February. So I'm going to rehash that one up because I, I remembered when I got this email in that, goodness, I think we answered a question similar to this. So I researched and found the original one and then the new one. So let me pull up the original one. Give me one second. Okay, so the original one, Chris, came to us February 4th. And it said, great podcast, very informative and enjoyable. But regarding your recent series on the fun number, where do potential expenses, like replacing a HVAC system, replacing a roof, fit in? Things I used to consider covered by my emergency fund when I was working. Those types of expenses. Mm -hmm. I am thinking I would take it from a buffer rather than my fund number because to me, they are not really fun expenses at all to cover. Mm -hmm. Okay, then we recently, as a result of our dialogue series, got this email in. I love your minimum dignity floor idea, but should it be considered minimum dignity floor plus emergency fund? I mean, where in your process do you take into consideration unexpected events like a trip to the dentist, replacing a stove, buying a new furnace? Mm -hmm. Where is that money allocated? I love your podcast and learn so much. So how would you address these two? Uh, 
I think pretty straightforward because those are things that we have always cons- been concerned about and always wanted to prepare for. And they are everything they've mentioned: uh, repairs to your house, durable goods replacements, uh, healthcare expenses, going to the dentist, all that kind of stuff. So we build in reasonable amounts in the budget for the minimum dignity floor for all of those items. Uh, that said, I think it's prudent to, in addition, have some buffer set aside reserve money for extraordinary events that might come up that may not have been anticipated in the regular budgeting of the minimum dignity floor. But if you're building your own minimum dignity floor, uh, when we say you know housing, as part of housing, there should be something in that budget for uh, repairs to your house, replacement roofs, uh, you know, periodically, all that kind of stuff uh, built in if, if you're in a living situation where those things happen, where um, it might be a little odd to think of. You obviously don't replace a roof or have to repair your house from some type of hail damage or something very often, hopefully. <laughs> um, and you don't even... If you know it's going to happen, you don't know when it's going to happen. So the way we approach that is we just build it in as an annual budgetary item with the intent that in month, in years you don't have those expenses, it builds up in the, creating a bit of a, I, I hate to call it an emergency fund, because traditionally in financial planning, an emergency fund is what you need to protect you in, in uh, a case where you lose your job or lose your income. Uh, once you're retired, it's not really the same as that. You don't need that income anymore. You have other resources. But having a reserve built up for those things, which will naturally happen in years where you don't have those events or you don't replace a dryer or a, or a stove, uh, there'll be money in there um, that by the time you need to buy one, um, hopefully there's already a cushion. But then if there's not quite enough at that point, that's where that buffer would come in. And and some people also kind of start their minimum dignity floor situation with a little seed money in there in case one of these larger expansions ha- happens a little early in their retirement and there and there hasn't been a natural buildup of reserves uh, in that case. So I, I think it's kind of a blend. You budget for these items at least you know reasonable anticipation for these items, um, and then also have a reserve available that. A reserve can be kind of for multiple things, but I think as part of your overall reserve size determination, you should include the fact that some reserves for for maybe some spikes in minimum dignity floor expenses that may not have been budgeted for could be handled. That's the way I would address that or, or, or describe how kind of we look at that. All right. What I'm, I'm trying to think as I was going through here, I've got... A bunch of questions that pertain to the minimum dignity floor and fund number that are actually printed. You can hear that now. That I was reaching across on my desk because I'm recording here at home today. But we also are kind of beating this horse to death and and chatting a lot about it. Do you want me to do non-questions related to that? Or do you want to keep this part going? Because I got a mixture of both. Hmm, well, let's, if you have something off, random off, it might be interesting to pull something in because we haven't been talking about this quite a bit lately. Okay. So if you have some random thing at this point, a little palate cleanser. 
Well, we could actually be extremely random. Let me, I mean, literally, I, I've never done this before. Oh, no. I am going, what? Well, I wanted an exciting show, but I don't know if I wanted a scary show. Well, I was saying I'm just going to scroll through my email. You you randomly pick a month. Pick a month between now, September, Mm -hmm. and January. I'm going to scroll to emails in that month, and we're going to answer the first one I click. Yeah, that's the scary part. That's the scary part. I agree. um, Let's go with June. All right. Uh, (laughs) I'm just trying to find one that we didn't answer yet. Because when I answer them, I, I, uh, you, if you hit flag and then unhit flag, it puts a little check mark. Yeah. So we don't have any in June. Do we have any? Oh wait, no, we do. Here it is. I have no idea what this is going to say. It I came know. from and the scary part is, isn't this one you chose not to answer already? So I hope not, because here we go. <laughs> here we go. Brace I've never yourself. done this, folks. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Uh, it came in on June 18th. Hi, Jim. I hope all is well with your health and that your garden is growing. It did, listener. Thank you very much. Uh, this year was a, a good gardening year. So, uh, because it actually rained a little for Colorado standards. I live in the state in which ESPN was founded and headquartered. I didn't know this. Uh, do you know? Uh, I, for some reason, I'm thinking Georgia. Like, um... Can- Connecticut. Oh, I don't know why I was thinking Georgia. Maybe that was CNN. Came no, out of Atlanta, maybe. All right, okay. let's get to anyway. the question. Seriously, I'm trying to read the question because I have no okay. idea what they're asking. It's something about 401ks. I've mm. never done this before. I've mm. usually always read the question. I hope I can answer this one. <laughs> My husband and I together have four different 401k plans from various former employers. Mm-hmm. Because of the guaranteed interest accounts available only to 401k participants, I think they're talking stable value funds Mm -hmm. also is what they go by. Because of the guaranteed interest accounts available only to 401k participants, I have not rolled these 401ks into an IRA. Now that interest rates available are now higher than what the 401k guaranteed interest accounts also called, again, listeners, stable value funds. I am thinking of consolidating these 401ks by rolling them into our IRAs. However, I will need additional guaranteed income to meet my minimum dignity floor sometime in my 80s. So that's a crossover point, I'm guessing, listeners, that she's referencing. In um, the future, Chris and I see that usually late 70s, early 80s, 73, excuse me, 78 to about 83 is where most people begin to need additional secure income to cover their minimum dignity floor. I and my husband, she continues, are 67. Now that annuities avail- are available from 401k plans, should I keep the 401k account for that purpose? The purpose being, folks, I believe, to uh, buy additional secure income in the future. That is, are annuities from 401k plans generally superior to annuities available to the general public? 
I have 401ks from, and then she lists the companies. I'm not going to mention them. All of the 401ks have lots of investment options, and the fees, I feel right now, are reasonable. All right, this one I can mm-hmm. answer. This is a pretty good question. Yeah. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. I, I feel good on this one. We've never done that. Talk about exciting. <laughs> we might we might have to do this more often where you just randomly pick a month mm-hmm. and I'm going to ask whatever question doesn't have a little check mark next to it. Because when I answer a question again, I will uh, flag it and then unflag it and it puts a little check mark. Mm-hmm. All righty. So this is a pretty good question, folks. What she's referencing is that under secure, it, it first passed in secure one, but it really took hold in secure two. And that is, there is no rule against having an annuity inside a 401k. They were just never offered. Mm-hmm. And you might be thinking, why would you put an annuity inside a 401k? <clears throat> Annuities already, excuse me, 401ks already grow tax deferred. Why do you want to put another tax deferred vehicle inside a tax deferred vehicle? That's a double negative. It makes no sense. We hear that argument a lot from AUM advisors, at least before fee-based annuities came out that would allow an AUM advisor to continue charging an AUM fee on money inside an annuity. Now that those exist, you don't hear fee-based advisors screaming like they used to, uh, AUM advisors rather screaming, don't buy an annuity inside an IRA. Uh, I used to laugh at that because it was more of a don't take money from me and put it in an annuity. I can't charge on it. But now they can, so this has kind of died down. And their biggest, their main criticism was uh, deferred annuities um, that you were getting, you know, tax deferred growth inside of something that would already be tax deferred, and the annuity would have extra fees and stuff. So that was there was a, a, an element of truth, to truth, it. or or real concern uh, in that that I can give the critics. But then they kind of make it a blanket and say, just call all annuities not a good idea. When what we're talking about, what she's talking about, is an income annuity. The benefit is the income guarantee, not the deferral. Exactly. And that's where I was going with Mm -hmm. it. The industry, the 401k industry, was not clamoring to offer a high-fee deferred annuity with minimal income benefits inside a 401k. And the AUM advisors who screamed about buying an annuity inside an IRA, if their biggest concern was exactly what Chris was saying, that you don't want to put a high fee, and this was back in the day of variable annuities especially, a high fee variable annuity inside an IRA, if it had no income benefit because you weren't getting any benefit, it was just that the insurance broker was getting a massive commission. And I concede that and I fully support that. But when you hear people bashing annuities and not quite understanding them, there are the annuities that Chris and I favor, pure income annuities. They go by the would that be it would be a an, an acronym, right? SPIA, because we say SPIA, SPIA. Single premium immediate annuity. So that is called an acronym, I believe. And those types of annuities pay a pure income benefit. 
and they are relatively low cost, and we like them. So the, there are two different types of annuities, and in the case of 401ks, they're talking about the latter. They're talking about putting some type of income annuity into a 401k. It's not quite as easy as it sounds. There are two main hurdles. The first hurdle was the 401k trustees themselves, the companies, saying, hey, wait a minute. We want protection. Mm -hmm. If we offer an income benefit, we want to make sure we're not going to be sued if something happens to the insurance company. We can do our due diligence, and a company that looks good today may not be good in the future, and we don't want to be sued. So it took Congress to step in and grant special protections that finally were codified and secured too. Then it doesn't, it doesn't uh, eliminate the requirement that the trustees of the 401k who have to act as a fiduciary don't have to worry at all and don't need to do any due diligence. They do. But if they follow rules and truly do buy at the, or, or offer at the time what they feel is a good option, they can't be held liable in the future for what might happen. Once that was passed, the thought is 401ks <clears throat> will start to offer annuities more and more in an effort to offer some guaranteed income, uh, um, kind of like pensionize, if you will, a defined contribution plan and allow it to look more like a defined benefit plan, which is a pension. Um, so 401ks right now define the contribution, but they do not define the benefit, the income you will get. A pension is called the defined benefit plan because they define what your future income payment will be. So they're trying to make almost a hybrid, if you will. But there is another issue confronting annuities inside 401ks, and that is most people leave their jobs within seven years. So what do you do with the old annuity? Can it move? Can it stay? Can it go into an IRA? Will it be portable? And to the best of my understanding, the annuities inside 401ks must be made portable. So if you want to move them, you can. You may not be able to continue contributing to them, but you will be able to move them. So you're not limited in your choices. I highly doubt 401ks will offer more than one annuity choice. I don't see them offering dozens. Although if the insurance industry has any say in the matter, they may do that. Sadly, I'm starting to read that complex annuities with living benefits and all these other things are the ones that may take hold inside annuities. But the theory is because 401ks are generally larger, maybe they would be able to get quote unquote institutional pricing and lower fee structures. I don't know if any of that is going to happen. I haven't seen any of the annuities yet being offered. 
and what you're going to get. I am a little bit cautious because the theory on these flies in the face of what Chris and I's belief is. And that is money that you put in during your younger years into an income annuity are pretty much going to be locked in and can only be used for income in the future. And you don't know if you will need income. If so, how much income will you need? You don't know what annuity or products will be available 20, 30, 40 years from now. So right now I'm talking to younger people. What would be available now and maybe buying that annuity and saving in it isn't going to give you as much income as you could have had if you just invested very aggressively in your 20s, 30s, and 40s and then decided to buy an annuity later when you do calculations and figure out how much you're going to need. So there's, it's still the Wild West, I guess, is what I'm getting at, folks. But this is big in the 401k world right now. Mm -hmm. And you will start to see more and more and more 401ks offering annuities. Now, back to this listener's question. You're making it sound, listener, like you're going to have wide variety of annuities offered inside your 401ks any day now, and you're going to be able to choose in the future an income annuity. That's not the way this is being designed. 401ks are designed for savers. It's not designed to allow someone to buy a SPIA, a single premium media annuity, at some point in the future. So any annuity inside a 401k is most likely going to be predicated on buying it early, letting it grow in a mass, and let the income benefit, especially if they do it as a living income benefit, let that benefit have a chance to also multiply and increase in value. The sooner you buy those types of annuities, the more money you get in the future. There's also talk about embedding annuities as part of target date funds. That kind of intrigues me. And it's being offered. It's been been offered for a while now. But just no 401ks adopted those target date funds. But the thought was in target date funds, which as you know, are those funds with the numbers after them, like 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050, 2060, and you're supposed to buy a target date fund whose date closest resembles the year you want to retire. So a 2050 or 2060 fund is, is someone for very young. And a 2020 fund or a 2025 uh, fund would be designed for someone who is close to or already retired. There's talk about embedding income annuities in target date funds and making the income annuity part of the bond holding. And this will be great for younger workers, not so much for older workers. And initially, say in a 2050 or 2060 fund, very little is going into bonds. So very little would be going into that annuity. And the target date fund would have a larger allocation to equities, which is what a 20 or 30-year-old should have. 20 or 30-year-olds, if you're saving for retirement and happen to be listening to this podcast for some bizarre reason, what the hell you own bonds for? You shouldn't. 
Now you would on money you might use to buy a home or something else. But I'm saying if you are earmarking money specifically for 40 years from now, you should be 100% equities and don't freak out when the market's dropping. That's a sale price to you. You're not 50, 60, 70, 80 trying to live off of your money and a negative market is going to kill you. You're young. It's a sale. You should be hoping for massive corrections. You can buy good investments cheaper. So these target date funds with the annuities embedded in them intrigue me because they will start with mostly equities, folks. But as people get into their 40s and 50s, more and more money will come out of stocks and start going into annuities and buying additional secure income at each age. That's how it's going to be. You're not going to be able to uh, extract the annuity from the target date fund. It becomes part of it. So by time you reach your target date of retirement, the annuity will pay some money out to you, excuse me, the target date fund will pay some money to you, but also have a liquidity feature of the other dollars that are not in the annuity. And it's kind of intriguing, Chris, what they're they're doing with that, embedding the annuity inside a target date fund. Again, I think it would be better for younger people to do it and then stick with it and don't stop it. So I wish I could give more advice or information, but this is so new and the insurance industry is just salivating over this. My fear, there'll be good annuities and there'll be some crappy ones finding their way in. You would hope the fiduciaries who are managing the 401k and are responsible for choosing the investments will be able to weed out the crappy ones and hopefully put a good one in. Again, I highly doubt there'll be more than one annuity option per 401k or it'll get incredibly confusing. But to this listener, nothing that I know of indicates that a 401k is now going to become like an annuity distribution platform where you can say, hey, I want to buy a single premium median annuity. I want some additional income. What do you guys got? They're really designing the annuities for, honestly, younger employees to be able to start dedicating some of their money, not to the risk of the market, but to the old defined benefit plans, where employees still put money into their defined benefit plan, but you are buying income. And that's what the industry and the government, who is... uh, supporting this and has given the protections from lawsuits that the industry wanted. Everyone is trying to get people to get more secure income. And 401ks were never designed for that. They made everyone in instant portfolio manager. And trust me, people, there's some pretty dumb people out there. Have you ever watched some of this social media crap out there and what people post and what they look like and talk like and what they do makes you scratch your head where they went to school. But those people all of a sudden are a professional portfolio manager trying to manage their retirement. These products are designed to help those people. 
They may not appeal to listeners of this podcast who probably have a good understanding of investments and asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, but you are the anomaly. You're the black swan. Most people have no clue about this. So before you shoot down annuities and 401ks and say, oh, it's a waste, it's this, it's that, they're all not as smart as you are. And they make stupid decisions. These products are being designed to help people overcome the fact that they just don't know how to invest and be a portfolio manager. And people shouldn't. People shouldn't have to spend hours, if not courses throughout high school and college learning this. They should be able to rely on professionals who are not going to rip them off, who are not going to sell them crap-ass products, who are just going to keep their best interests at heart and take care of them. Unfortunately, that's not the way my industry works, as you all know. But we can only hope that slowly these types of changes are made. So I support this. I think it's a good step in the right direction. But for this listener, I don't feel it's going to warrant keeping those 401ks. I'm not saying to move them, but I just don't know. You're only 67. You're projecting your shortage in your early 80s. Still a long time from now. I don't know what 401ks are going to offer what annuities. But you do say you like your 401ks. You have what you feel are pretty good investments. It's just that you're not getting enough guaranteed income right now on your stable value or guaranteed interest accounts, as you called them. And you can get more outside of the 401k. Maybe. It's just hypothetical, maybe. I'm not giving you specific advice. But if you know how much dollars you want to keep in these stable value, and if you move your money, I would assume you're going to buy a money market account or ladded uh, bills or, or um, a MIGA or something. I don't know what you're looking at buying a brokered CD or a bank CD. Why don't you just identify the dollar amounts that you wanted to keep in these guaranteed accounts And just move those dollars and invest those dollars in the higher yielding items. But your other dollars are still in your 401ks. You obviously like them. You have four of them. One thing I would do is get a hold of each 401k and ask them specifically, will they allow transfers into the 401k even though you're not working there? Some do. Most don't. But some do. If one of your 401ks allows dollars to be transferred back in, that's probably the 401k that you should debit to be able to buy the higher interest yielding options. Because in the future, if options in your IRA are no longer paying more interest than the options in the 401k, you can move those dollars back in. Mm -hmm. Or that 401k in 13 or so years might have a wonderful annuity. You could transfer dollars into it. So you ask the 401ks if you can transfer dollars back in. The only other thing I want to add is this strategy of yours of keeping four 401ks will not simplify your retirement. That's going to be the trade-off to what you're advocating. 
Each 401k is going to have to have their own required minimum distribution. Each 401k, especially if you name a non-spousal beneficiary, is going to mandate the non-spouse move the 401k out into their own inherited account. It can get difficult uh, for beneficiaries. Mo it's, they can do it. It's just difficult. That's all I'm saying. Most 401ks will not allow a trust to be named as beneficiary of the 401k. So if you wanted, you don't indicate for some reason, not that we like it, but some people do create a trust and want to name their IRA as beneficiary of, excuse me, the trust as beneficiary of their IRA. Most 401ks will not accept a trust as beneficiary. But the big thing will be your RMDs, especially as you age. 401ks cannot be combined. They cannot be considered, rather. Four individual 401ks will require four individual RMDs. Whereas if you had four individual IRAs, you could take all the RMD from one of the IRAs. But also you're going to be faced with managing four separate accounts, all with four separate investment choices. So you're going to have different choices in each 401k. My point is it might start to become more confusing as you age. Keep that in mind. And if you want to keep things simple for the older you, at some point, you might end up consolidating those 401ks. Mm -hmm. Anyways, kind of went down a little bit of a, a realm there, to a rabbit hole rather, to, to give people a broader understanding of what's happening in the industry. But mark my words, annuities inside 401ks are coming. They are trying to make defined contribution plans similar to defined benefit plans and give people a steady stream of income. It's pretty hard to screw up a steady stream of income. It is not difficult to screw up investment management. And, and managing distributions and all of that, yeah. Correct. Not taking but, too much. You know, all, that, all that complexity comes in that was kind of created the complex world of retirement planning that we have now since defined benefit plans started going away. That's really what created our whole industry. There was very small amount of what we would call retirement planning back in the day because people just continued receiving a salary effectively. They kept receiving their pension, uh, just equivalent to a salary of some kind, and they just had to budget for that and live within those dollars. Uh, so there wasn't a heck of a lot of planning. There was still planning opportunities, but not like we have now. Now we have this this whole world of complexity of managing these assets and distributing them appropriately to make sure you don't outlive them and all this other kind of stuff. So um, I think it's a little early yet to judge, as as Jim pointed out. We just haven't seen enough of these offerings inside of 401ks. I, I haven't seen one specific one yet. I haven't seen one yet, one yet either. So, no, it's too new. Yeah. So it's the one question she had is, you know, are they, are they better inside or outside? We don't know what the inside ones are going to look like yet. Um, hopefully there is some kind of institutional pricing on those where you could make, you know, you could say, gee, it is a little better. Like maybe, you know, the stable value funds that are all oftentimes inside of 401ks because of institutional pricing on those, it is a little bit better than the equivalent you could find outside of those uh, 401ks. 
we can hope for the optimistic you know, part of me uh, is hopeful that, that, that that's going to happen with the uh, annuity offerings that are inside these 401ks. It'll be good due diligence done by the plan providers and um, they'll actually be real strong offerings compared to what you could get outside, which is going to make a real strong argument for leaving a portion of dollars inside your 401k to annuitize potentially if you're looking for annuitized income. Uh, or some kind of income benefit, you know, right? That whole paycheck continuing for the rest of your life concept, which could come in a variety of forms, as Jim discussed. But the proof's in the pudding. It'll be what we actually see them roll out. Um, so we'll be watching this closely and, and and let you know what we what we start to see as they show up. Yeah, and especially for younger workers, they would have to have a good understanding. And the four, excuse me, the annuity is going to have to have strong guarantees and a simple way of a 20 or 30 something to be able to accurately project what am I going to have as income in the future. I'm hoping they're not just creating uh, withdrawal based annuities inside a 401k where somebody has to put money in and depending on how that money in the 401k grows, this is going to be how much of it per uh, year you would be able to withdraw. If you if you keep the annuity for 20 years, you can withdraw 5% at age 65. If you keep it for 30 years, you can withdraw 8% at age 65. I'm just making these numbers up. If it's one like that, you don't really know what you're going to have again. That's the whole point. It's still, okay, I know what percentage I'm going to be able to withdraw from the annuity, but my annuity still has to grow to a certain level. Mm -hmm. Then you have to be able to figure out, well, the investments inside that annuity, are they good? How much are they going to grow to? If you have access to them, are you going to panic and move them? Or invest them uber conservatively in your 20s and 30s for some bizarre reason. I'm hoping it's not like that. That's why I'm attracted to the target date fund idea. Uh, to, to turn over the management of, of it to someone else who's going to take out the emotions of investing. I think that's the biggest impediment, I think, to people sometimes achieving their retirement savings goals was themselves. They let their emotions get in the way of things. Mm -hmm. When I hear 20 and 30-year-olds, I was on a hike not too long ago with a 30-something-year-old. And I was trying to help him out because he was talking to another 30-something-year-old um, as they were hiking about their savings and investing. And talking about their asset allocation and what percent in this and that. I just don't throw it. I just butt it in and, and just told them to. They used to have it all in equities. What the hell are you doing? You, you, they were 31 years old, I think. You guys are working for another 30 plus years. Shouldn't be looking at anything but the most aggressive holding and trying to get them to understand that. It's just I don't understand why 20 and 30 something. And to a greater degree, you know you're old when I'm saying 40 is still young. Because I remember when I turned 40, I thought I was old. But I'm 60 now. Trust me, 40 is young. If you're in your early 40s, I'd concede up to 45. I think anywhere in that range, you should be very aggressive. Now, if you are hoping to retire somewhere in your 50s, as you get into your 45, you have to kind of change things around. But if you're thinking of working to 65, at 45, you still got 20 years. You should be striving for growth, 
The reduction of volatility is only to appeal to the emotional you at those ages. So you might be able to look at your portfolio and say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm only down 15% and the market's down 18. I'm doing good or something like that. But it defeats the purpose of investing, in my opinion. You need that low volatility and the, the reduction of, of uh, volatility and uh, the increase of, of guarantees as you get close to retirement, as you get in that transition phase, as you start determining, if you borrow from our approach to retirement, as you start determining what your delay period minimum dignity flow needs will be and what dollars you want to initially spend on fun. But don't forget, young folks and old folks, as I wrap this up, I've been doing this 24 years. Nobody ever on day one of retirement has said, I'm retired, give me all my money. Or I'm retired, I need all my money. You don't need it all on day one. Even on day one of retirement at, say, 65, there are still some expenses that you will not be covering until you're 85. And those expenses can still be left in fairly aggressive offerings. I wouldn't say 100% equities like I would to a 24-year-old. But you 40-year-olds who are listening, and even 50-year-olds, you still have on some of your dollars the ability to keep them 100% equities. Because by the time you get to 65, which could be 20, 25 years from now, there's still some of those dollars that won't be needed for another 20-plus years, making you still having a 40, 45-year hold on some of your portfolio. That's the concept of the see-through portfolio. Start identifying the spending and expenses that your assets need to support. And that spending earmarked well into the future, my God, keep that invested. I still lean more towards investing and buying a simple income annuity in the future when you need it. But for many people, they are so bad at handling all this, I'm receptive to them putting some money into an income annuity or whatever income benefit that the 401ks are going to offer during their younger years because they just make horrendous emotionally driven mistakes of panicking a 25-year-old, a 30, a 35-year-old panicking because the market's down. You should be salivating and buying more. But that's not how people think. They panic. They move their dollars. They miss the rebounds. It's just, it's horrendous. And they end up with precious little in dollars. You want to help retirees in this country, you pass a law that says you cannot see your 401k balance except for once a year. Yeah. That'll never happen, but that would help. It would help. Yeah. So people say, I have no idea what mine's doing. I keep putting money in. Right. I mean, seriously, it's your emotions that cause most of these problems. Anyways, I digress. Okay. Uh, Good show. We got through uh, six or so of these. Yeah, six. Uh, <laughs> and a six whole emails. thing on stacronyms. 
yeah, that was interesting too. So I'd, I'd call this a fairly exciting show. So thank you for for living up to the promise I, that I made I, for I, you at the beginning of the show. And if you want to send in your own questions for the next exciting show here at the Retirement and IRA show, uh, send those into Jim directly. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. And in the subject line, indicate that it's a question for the podcast. And hopefully we'll we'll cover your question at some point in the future. We can't obviously get to everyone's question, but we do our best to get to as many as possible. So, Jim, thanks for joining me today and making it exciting. And you have a good weekend. Thank you, thank you. And everybody else, I hope you have a great day, whatever day it is you're listening to this. And I'll end like Chris does. We'll be, how do you end? We'll, we'll be back with you soon with a brand new show or something next like that. week back with you next week with a brand new show so okay. close close <laughs> okay see everybody later you have listened to jim on the radio read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on itunes but even now you may wonder what sets jim salmier and associates apart from other financial planning companies the answer is quite simple jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 